everyone, it's Aviva Rumani, and this is Kindred Cast, unfiltered conversations with the business and cultural leaders who shape the world we live in. Kindred Cast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by Lion Tree, the global investment and merchant bank. For more insightful content, including our podcasts, newsletters, and events, and to get in touch with us, search for Kindred Media wherever you're listening to this. Welcome to Kindred Cast. I'm Allison Ross, an investor here at Lion Tree. Today, we're very excited to have Ryan Hargan on the show. Ryan is the CEO and co-founder of Artie. Artie is a Web3 entertainment company that brings together gaming, NFTs, and culture. Artie's technology and its secret sauce, which I'm super excited to talk about, enables games to bypass app stores and instead be played instantly within social apps like TikTok, Instagram, and Twitter. Ryan's roots are in media. He served as the chief content officer at the immersive media startup Felix and Paul. He was also an executive at Fox New Regency, where he oversaw the development and production of many feature films. Ryan, thanks so much for being here with us on the show today. It's really great to have you. Thanks for having me. Excited to join. Great. Maybe you could kick us off by telling us in your own words, what is Artie and what inspired you to start the business? Yeah, as you mentioned, Artie is a Web3 entertainment and gaming company. And our interest is really being able to democratize access to mobile games and also let gamers own their game assets, which we believe is really about empowering users to take control of their destiny and their entertainment experiences. So sort of moving from Web 2 to Web 3, it's all about player empowerment for us and community empowerment. And before we really get into it, I just have to ask, where did the name RD come from? So in our early days, we were actually working on some AI technology, mainly speech recognition and computer vision. So my co-founder Armando had made a voice-driven game with Google that was actually a VR game. And you could talk to this little dog, and his name was Artie, and he was named after artificial intelligence. So he was sort of like short for AI. The name kind of stuck. We kept the name. We thought it was a fun short name that felt like a brand, and we got the .com domain. So decided to stay with it when we pivoted into what we're doing now. Awesome. So... What do you think are the greatest pain points for mobile gamers today? I'd really love to understand how you think about what are the gaps in the current experience and how is Artie striving to fill them? Yeah, so the one thing we recognized today is that most of our content that we consume and discover on our phones are done so in the social layer or inside of video apps like YouTube or TikTok. Gaming is sort of the last category of media that's not discovered and consumed there at large in a way that say like video is with YouTube being accessible via shareable links or photos or articles. All of this stuff is shared via the web or web addresses inside of social or in a link in bio. So gaming is sort of the last category where we haven't seen good enough web-based games essentially that you could share and play right inside of TikTok or Instagram like you could a video. So that's number one, I would just say sort of democratizing access and moving gaming out of just the app store and the downloadable experience into something that's instant and easily shareable and easily accessible in that social layer, just like other content. Yeah. And maybe can you talk a little bit more about how Artie is really disrupting the role of the app store? If you could talk a little bit about how it's different from a technical standpoint from cloud gaming. Yeah, so we first looked at normal web games, which today are written in HTML5 or JavaScript, and those seem to have a pretty low ceiling in terms of graphics quality or complexity or scope that you could achieve. So if you look at most of the games made in HTML5 and JavaScript, which are called instant games today, 
These are the types of games you see in Facebook's mobile app or Snapchat's mobile app. They're coming to TikTok and they're in other apps in other territories. But these are typically hyper-casual games, which you know normally have 2D graphics. They're the type of games you play for maybe two to eight weeks and people kind of churn out of them and you watch a bunch of ads inside them. But they're technically under the thumb of Apple because they're part of the UX UI of, say, Facebook or Snapchat. Apple has oversight over those games. And for that reason, they're not allowed to monetize transactionally like casual and mid-core games would do, these more expensive games to make and market. So really, the only type of game you see today that's instantly accessible inside of another social app would be these kind of hyper-casual instant games. But we kind of realized that there was a hole in the market and perhaps people would be interested in playing deeper games, more meaningful games that they would play for longer, which are typically casual, mid-core, core mobile games. But we didn't see the technology within the web ecosystem today to make those games. So then when we looked at cloud gaming, we saw obviously the technology is there to produce incredible results. But on mobile connections and within the mobile free-to-play business model, we saw two challenges. Number one, latency. So we've all heard about latency when it comes to cloud gaming. The basic idea is you're rendering the game in the cloud. So you're kind of doing the decision-making and logic there, and then you're rendering the graphics there on the server's GPUs in the cloud. And then you're streaming the final video down to players. Well, players then have to push buttons on their device or phone, that input has to go all the way back up to the cloud in real time. And you need a really fast loop between video down and input back up. So for that reason, if you're on a mobile connection, even 5G as we know it today, it's going to be fairly unreliable and you're going to have perceivable latency or delay that's going to disrupt your playing experience. So we saw that, but, you know, and that's why if you look at the big players in the cloud gaming space, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, they're predominantly focused on the at-home PC and console AAA gaming space because chances are you'll have a more reliable, faster internet connection there. But the bigger problem we saw on mobile was not really the latency. It was the operational cost of how expensive it is to render graphics in the cloud. So for even Amazon and Google, by our estimates, it's still about 35 to 40 cents per player per hour to render graphics on the cloud's GPUs. And then you have to stream pretty raw, uncompressed video down to players because you don't have time for the normal tricks or compression and buffering that one-way video streaming services like Netflix would use. So for that reason, we saw that, well, in a free-to-play game, you can't afford to basically cost 35 to 40 cents per player per hour. Otherwise, you'd have pretty terrible business because that's way more on an hourly basis than your average player is contributing to the ecosystem. So for that reason, we've looked at a hybrid approach between cloud and web using some kind of bleeding edge. You need technology and some of our own to treat our games as if they're cloud games on the one hand, server authoritative games that go a step further, that take advantages of being housed and coordinated on the cloud. We're running a Unity game in the web browser of TikTok. So that's essentially what we built. And it allows us to achieve app store quality games without an app download or without the latency and operational cost of a cloud game. Got it. So I guess the analog would be like edge computing. You guys have created edge gaming in a sense. Yeah, I think it's not literally edge gaming, but it, as an analogy, that's what we like to say. Yeah, absolutely. You're kind of doing the last mile, the the piece that causes latency and cost on the user's end device. And is anyone else out there doing this? How hard was it to build this? There's a few folks doing this for PC browser games exclusively that we're aware of. And then there's some edge gaming companies that are quite literally doing edge where they're setting up server centers in different cities. But those are pretty heavy lifts. 
And as far as who else is doing instant games, you basically have all the folks making games for Facebook and Snap that are using these basic web technologies or web languages. So we're not particularly aware of anyone doing things the way we're exactly doing them in relation to Unity, but we just got out in front of this potential solution with some of Unity's early tech before others. And for us, it's less about being a technology mode and more being like first to market. So the analogy we like to use is YouTube. Like YouTube at the time, probably thought they had pretty proprietary streaming technology, but pretty quickly they probably realized they didn't. Everyone had a version of that, but it was their product decisions and being able to offer embedded videos in MySpace comments or on websites that allowed them to truly scale. They were able to have their tentacles everywhere. So that's kind of how we view this for higher quality games you can play in the social layer. I guess just moving into truly what makes already differentiated, I've always viewed as the community building aspect. I know that's core to the mission of Arty. Can you speak more to how you're building community and maybe with that weave in how the user acquisition strategy works? Yeah. So I think our belief is that the next great entertainment company will probably be a gaming company first and vice versa. The next great gaming company needs to be a 360 degree entertainment company as well. So we like to say like a 360 entertainment juggernaut. And what that means is it's not enough to just make games. If you want to make games that are culturally relevant to young people in the place where culture lives, which is social media and video streaming apps like TikTok and YouTube, then you can't just make games. You have to, in our view, make games, focus on film and TV, merch, live events, esports, like it's the whole meal. And really, there's only one gaming company that I can think of that's doing a pretty great job at that so far, and that's Riot Games. And if you kind of look at where they are today, they're doing all those things at an exceptionally high level. And they're moving kind of upstream to mobile games as well to capture more users. So when I look at most mobile gaming publishers, they really don't put any emphasis on community or culture. There's a pretty specific user acquisition strategy that starts with ads and getting people to download apps and then watching ads inside of games and then some small minority percentage buy stuff. So it's a pretty tight loop that resembles probably a slot machine more closely than a community-based game. And when I look at what games resonate most culturally, they typically start on PC and console and sometimes make their way over to mobile. So League of Legends, Fall Guys, Among Us, Call of Duty, games like that. So those games put a big emphasis on community, but to date, they've really leveraged Discord and Twitch and YouTube as where that community lives. And I would say Discord more than anything today. So for us, our sort of idea is what if these games can kind of live amorphously across all these channels, whether it's Discord or Twitter, so if your player base, whether they're on Twitter or on Discord, they can choose where they want to play from. Essentially, that community experience can be right at the same place where their gameplay experience is, which we think is quite powerful. So if I'm playing the game through an Instagram link and you're playing the game through a YouTube link, it's still possible that we can be playing together in the same instance. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So cross-platform play, because it's all happening in the web through the embedded browsers of these apps, they're just links no different than YouTube links, only you're playing a high-quality game rather than watching a video. But if you think about it that way, then it really sort of creates this new interesting opportunity and challenge, which is to think of games in this setting as influencers. So you have to create lots of async video content and memes and get your community creating lots of stuff and participating because you want to keep the games and the network of games top of mind 
to be able to acquire new users. You want your players to really value the ecosystem in the community. So you want them to spread the word. And that kind of leads us to Web3. There's no better tool for organic user acquisition in our view today within youth culture or within social media than NFTs. So this idea that you might own an NFT that is your game character, but also could be your avatar on Twitter or Instagram, like we've seen with Board Ape Yacht Club and CryptoPunks. This is sort of just a natural place where the convergence of gaming and NFTs makes a lot of sense in that social layer. What is the vision for the role of NFTs in the RD ecosystem? And have you done any NFT drops yet? Yeah, so we've done an NFT drop earlier this year, which sold out in about 12 minutes. And then we entered the bear market in NFT world. So we've been kind of holding on above our mint price while we've been preparing for the alpha launch of our first game and our second NFT drop as well, which we actually just announced today. So we'll have done a couple of NFT drops before our alpha's out in the next few weeks. And then we'll be moving into public beta by the end of the year and early next year. So for us, what that means is playable game characters that are NFTs. So think of it kind of like a Fortnite or Call of Duty. You can play these games for free and the most highly coveted assets in the games are the character skins. So imagine if those were just NFTs that you could actually own in a wallet. They're yours. You could take them with you to other games in our ecosystem eventually and potentially other games outside of our ecosystem because there's a common file format that you know will be adopted or has been adopted widely across interactive experiences. So what's interesting about that is it allows people to jump into our games right away via a link. They don't need to own an NFT to start playing, unlike some of the first generation crypto or NFT games where you actually need to buy in and own NFTs to play. In our case, these are just free-to-play games where you could play the game endlessly and have a lot of fun and just use the base character skins that are not NFTs, just like Fortnite or Call of Duty. But if you get good at the game and you're top the leaderboard or you're winning tournaments, you'll start to win these NFTs and then we'll start to show you, well, this is what a wallet is and this is how you can set up a wallet so we don't make you do that hard work or present any friction until there's something of value waiting for you that you've earned. Or, you know, you might just be a collector or a speculator and you want to buy into our primary sales or our onto OpenSea and just collect because you don't want to play the game and become a top player, let's say. So I guess, would you characterize the way the path that already is going down is to become one of these play-to-earn type platforms? No, I'd say it's a small distinction. So play-to-earn typically is more the gamification of finance. And I think what you're starting to see now is a second generation of games being developed, which is more of the financialization of gaming, which I think is a slightly different idea. And these two worlds haven't yet converged. So when I look at games like Axie Infinity or Zed Run, I think they're more in the former category, which you would consider play to earn. And typically these games require you as a newbie to set up, say, Coinbase or some equivalent for the first time, link your bank account, which probably takes a week to be accepted or clear, buy some ETH. Then you have to set up MetaMask. You have to transfer your ETH from Coinbase to MetaMask. Then you have to buy the native token of the game. And then you have to spend a certain amount of ETH, or or in that case, their native token, to get good enough characters or skins in the game to compete because typically these games are stat-based. So some NFTs are better at performing in the game than others. The problem with that model is it creates a player imbalance where the richest players are the best players. And if you're not spending a lot of money, then you're going to sort of toil in obscurity and not really be playing at the highest level. So if you look at games like Fortnite and Call of Duty, these games, in our view, really got it right. They're Character skins are purely vanity-based. None of them are better in the game than others. So we think that's the key to unlocking mass adoption for Web3 games. The combination of how we're distributing these games, where they live, and how that might resonate 
culturally in the social layer, but also that there's zero friction to play. You don't have to set up a wallet or buy in by owning any of NFTs if you're a newbie player. You can just be playing the game because you think the game is fun. And then sort of let all of the people who are already indoctrinated into NFTs become your initial user base of whales, the equivalent from a mobile game where maybe 1% or so of your players carry sort of an outsized value in terms of what they're buying or what they're contributing financially. And you alluded before to an alpha launch. If you don't mind sharing, can you describe a bit more about that game? Yeah, so that game is currently under a code name. We're trying to find the right title for it. But essentially, it's a player versus player clash style game. So if you know Clash of Clans or Golf Clash or Tennis Clash, these are typically one-on-one games where you play quick matches. They're usually sports or some kind of game. And then you either win or you lose and you climb the leaderboard or you fall down the leaderboard, depending on how you've done in each match. People might play for five minutes, 25 minutes or hours when they're in these games. And as you climb these leaderboards, you might unlock loot boxes that have accessories, clothing, different items, or also new character skins. So in our case, you'll be able to get all these different accessories that may not be NFTs. You'll be able to purchase loot boxes and stuff like you would in any other game or just play your way there by being great at the game. But once every so often, you'll find a really rare NFT in this loot box that you can uh, start to use. And then it might be very rare. You can trade it. So this game also is very modern and for... Gen Z and millennials. So uh, it's a beer pong game, sort of meets Mortal Kombat or Street Fighter. And the reason why we chose that is we realized beer pong is one of the most widely played games amongst this kind of 18 to 30 year old demographic that we're really interested in. But also beer pong alone may not be as fun as it could be if you added superpowers and all kinds of skills and power ups and defensive blockers similar to a fighting game. So we think it's going to be a really fun genre mashup that's going to change the genre of this already proven style of games that's worked quite well in the mobile ecosystem. And what drove the decision to start top-down with your own first-party games? I know we've spoken about opening up already to a broader developer ecosystem. How many more games do you expect to put out yourself before opening it up? We're going to put out this first game, like we said, in alpha very soon. And by early next year, we'll be in our soft launch, our public beta. And then we're working on our second game already, which will come out probably towards the back half of next year. But in the meantime, we're working on adapting and porting over a couple of games that have already been made that have really great potential, but maybe they were not the right fit for the App Store. Perhaps they were the second or third game in a genre to land. So they've got great fundamentals, but they just need to be reskinned and re-released with a new point of view and with NFTs in its core economy or on social, in our view. So that's kind of what we're doing as an interim step. We're also going to be putting out these bounties to different developers in our ecosystem where we're going to let people opt in to make micro experiences and smaller experiences and start to lay the groundwork of what our developer ecosystem and program would look like. And then towards the back half of next year, we'll launch a full-fledged SDK and developer program where we'll start to focus on third-party games as well. And I think the unique thing about NFTs and crypto is we've seen a lot of other crypto projects or NFT projects launch tokens. And I think if you do that at the right moment after you've had the right measure of success, in our case, you could use a token to govern the community and through a potentially um, treasury, you could allow the community to select and greenlight indie game projects that they might want to fund. So you could get up to speed and get greater scale in a developer ecosystem more quickly. And if you look at Roblox as the comp, it took them many, many years to scale their developer ecosystem. One reason is they were targeting 12 and under users. So there weren't a lot of professional or semi-professional game developers making games for them initially. It was probably primarily kids or teenagers. We're focusing on more of this 18 plus demographic, which we think is underserved in the mobile gaming ecosystem. 
just based on the numbers. So we believe that chances are we'll be able to reach a lot of bedroom creators or small teams that are playing the game and also interested in creating as well. And then on Unity's side, on Real's side, and certainly with a number of other startups, they're all working on tools for easier game development. So sort of no-code or low-code game development. That's not necessarily something we're working on solving. We're really working on solving distribution and sort of the ownership side of things through how we're delivering these games technologically and how you can own these game assets and ultimately what that means for you as a player. But there's plenty of other folks working on making game development easier and more democratized. And that's going to only continue over this decade. And what will the revenue model be, I guess, for the alpha game? And then how do you think it will evolve over time? First and foremost, our NFTs will come out seasonally, which in our case is every quarter. So if you look at Fortnite or Call of Duty and how they have different seasons, typically it's on a quarterly basis. And they'll do a new character skin drop, maybe with a collaborator or a celebrity. So Marvel doing a collab with Fortnite, for example, or Call of Duty, I think, did one at one point with Rambo. And they used Sly Stallone's likeness for that. There was a John McClane, I think, season as well. So they'll use different IP and different celebrities for these drops. So we're doing the same thing. We're working with different artists that have fans either on Instagram or in the NFT community. We're working with different music artists who are creating the music for our NFTs and for our games. But we'll also be working with different influencers and celebrity partners when we do these drops. So every time we do a drop, some portion of them will be sold in a primary sale to NFT collectors who sort of set the floor price and the price target for the players who maybe don't have the financial means to spend and collect, but want to play their butts off to earn something that month because they either won a tournament, they played the longest, or they're atop the leaderboard. So this creates potentially a flywheel where the more players who are coming to earn these NFTs that have value set by the collectors, the more collectors potentially drive up the value of those NFTs, the bigger the rewards or prizes get for the players who hopefully keep coming in because they seem to see more value in what's available to be earned. When you think about the developer side, I guess the whole point of or the economic point of accessing the game through a link is that you're going around the app store. Is there an opportunity for you to undercut take rate as a result with the developers? The other piece I wanted to mention is we also will have a basic fiat economy in all of our games. So we look at the potential players as a spectrum. So on mobile, the vast majority are free-to-play players who buy nothing and probably aren't skilled enough to earn valuable NFTs in this case in our game. But from a social standpoint, they enjoy the game, they love playing it. So that's probably the vast majority. Then you have a smaller minority who is used to transacting via credit cards and buying basic items in games, loot boxes or basic accessories, and sometimes character skins. So we have a partner on the payment side that essentially is like the stripe of gaming that will allow us to process payments through the web, but also hook into Apple Pay and Google Pay so that people can use those services as well. Once you're on the web, you can choose who the back end is. So that's also part of the economy. So when we look at our revenue in our first year or so, I would say about half of it is probably going to be from NFTs and secondary sales on NFTs. And the other half will be through typical fiat-based transactions with credit cards for lower cost in-game items. So that's a really interesting dynamic, I think, because it allows lower cost items to sell via credit cards in a way that people are familiar with, but also as people get educated and opt into the NFT side and get their first crypto wallet, that becomes, I think, a more important piece of the monetization. And it also allows developers to index in different directions. Do they want to focus more on that in-game economy or do they want to launch their own NFT collection for their game that lives inside of our ecosystem? Another way to think of these characters, by the way, 
that we like to talk about is imagine if Nintendo launched today their great Mario franchise and they made the first couple of games and then they turned it over to the community who could all make their own games. And imagine if Mario, Luigi and Princess and all these characters were essentially on the blockchain and were NFTs you could own. You could own a fractionalized piece of Mario that was unique. So that's kind of how we think about the world we're building. Hopefully the next great gaming IP that can be owned by its community. And then ultimately you can opt in to make games in that ecosystem freely without any restrictions. So if you think about Roblox, incredible platform, but you have to operate in the app ecosystem. If it's on mobile, you have to use their specific tool set and aesthetic. They have a fairly big take rate. Same with the App Store, 30%. For us, there is no take rate because we make money on the secondary sales of NFTs and our own NFTs. So for us, we're not actually thinking about a store fee or a take rate at all because the entire dynamic is different. That really translates directly into your ability to maintain a stable CAC over time and also customer retention, I'm sure. Yeah. And I know Artie now is a mobile gaming company, but do you see one day these games being played on a VR headset? I'm curious, are you bullish on VR? I'm bullish on VR in the long term, but I was in VR for three years and decided to leave because I didn't feel like it was ready for mass adoption and it didn't feel like it was able to scale to the extent that it would need to. And I still feel that way. And my guess is as Oculus continues to grow and it's a great product, it will stay the niche gaming device for many years. So I'm more bullish on AR glasses from folks like Apple or potentially Facebook, I guess, as well and Google that will be essentially like an Apple watch on your face that does the basic stuff that you want from a accessory. Maybe it tells you what the weather is and which way to walk in New York City and that you have text messages. And then eventually, once there's enough adoption and that's Bluetoothing to the phone in your pocket, then they'll start to add more functionality over the subsequent years for gaming. So I think a lot of people who are working in this area, they tried to get to the ultimate potential of the future, but forgot about, hey, how am I going to scale this? Typically, if you build something on top of something that already exists that has a massive audience, aka the phone in your pocket, that's probably the best way as opposed to a standalone device that's really expensive. So I would guess that it's going to go through AR glasses that use the phone as your beacon or your computer. It'll move a little more slowly from there. But I think that Ready Player One future is inevitable at some point. It's just a question of how long will it take, I think. Yeah. Moving to a little bit of a different topic, I'd love to hear a little bit about your investor base mostly as it relates to how you've thought about your board and making sure you have the right people around the table to be sounding boards? So we really focused on having a pretty diverse group of investors. So a lot of founders like Chad Hurley from YouTube or Mark Pincus, founder of Zenga, the Winklevoss Twins, Warner Music Group, Allen & Company, Harris Blitzer, Sports Entertainment, Manuel Bronstein, who's the chief product officer of Roblox, or Kevin Mayer, who started Disney Plus and was the CEO of TikTok and now has Kendall Media, and Steve Cohen and his two partners, Mark Daniel and Benjamin Milstein. So these are all some of our many great VCs, to name a few. We typically look for people who are in gaming, entertainment, or have a strong background in helping early stage companies grow. So whether they're like a big financial institution or an individual, we kind of look for a diverse group of folks. And they help us in different ways, whether it's business development or we have a couple of celebrity type of investors like Kevin Durant and Naomi Osaka. So there's sort of different ways in which we look to our investors to help us along our journey. Yeah, that's an awesome group you've got. And then I guess would also be curious if you've taken the same approach when it's come to building your team, just given you straddle both gaming and entertainment and even art 
curious how you've gone about recruiting and building the team. Yeah, I would say for the most part, our team is from gaming. So we have people from Riot Games, Activision Blizzard, EA, Zenga, Jam City, PlayStation, Tencent. And we have a few people from Disney and Meta and Amazon. So it's a pretty diverse group of people. Head of our art department's from Riot. Our head of product is from EA. So we wanted to create a really strong base there. And then we've also been focusing on people from the broader world of entertainment and culture, specifically when it comes to marketing, communications, things like that. Try to be pretty specific in terms of who we're hiring and what department and how they can help us as well. Awesome. Well, super excited for that alpha launch. Yeah, absolutely. Are you ready for some quick lightning round questions? Yeah, absolutely. What is your all-time favorite video game? Okay, I'm going to give you two. I'm going to give you an obscure one that I love and then the less obscure one. So Jet Set Radio is the obscure one. It's kind of like this inline skating game with graffiti and really cool music from, I think, the original PlayStation, and then they updated it. So it just has this really fun, culturally relevant element that reminds me of the games that we're trying to make. And then beyond that, I would say... It's a tough one. I'd have to choose between, I guess, Tony Hawk, Mario 3, and Grand Theft Auto. And I guess I'd go Grand Theft Auto. I thought for sure you were going to say Mario Kart. Oh, Mario Kart. That's a good one, too. Yeah. Are there any CEOs or other startups that you really admire? Doesn't have to be in gaming. Yeah, and become sort of a Frank Slootman disciple, Frank Slootman of Snowflake, because his particular thoughts on hiring and culture, I think, are really interesting. And he's written a lot of stuff on that topic, and I've heard him on many podcasts. So... One thing that we've been really working on is just being super diligent during our hiring process and being really intentional in the preparation work we do before we hire someone. And then how we diligence them is pretty over the top, I would say, and sometimes slightly annoying, but really gives us a lot of assurance that we're hiring someone who's going to be raising the bar. And then Tim Sweeney, I would say, just because I love how he runs Epic Games and I feel like he really understands the vision of the future for the metaverse and his product. And he's really developer and community first in how he does things. And then finally, do you have an avatar or is there a character in the game that was inspired by you? I do have an avatar that's one of our season one NFTs. It's a boss paw character. So it's a kind of hip hop dog with cool clothes and piercings. Yeah, that's my avatar today. And then when we launch our next NFT collection, I'll probably switch to one of the new ones from this artist junkyard who we worked with most recently. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. This is really great. Yeah, thank you. Glad to do it and looking forward to hearing it. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, find us and subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review as well as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on social media at KindredCast for behind-the-scenes photos and info. Listen to KindredCast on SiriusXM every Saturday and Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern on Business Radio Channel 132 or stream shows on demand in the SiriusXM app.